0: This is an AMI podcast. Our voices, our stories, our community. Listen to AMI audio podcasts highlighting news, stories, and information relevant to people with disabilities across Canada. Learn more at amica audio.
1: In March of 2010, Holly Bartlett's white cane that she used to navigate her way around Halifax was bent in a dust-up on the road. Holly wasn't hurt, and this kind of thing wasn't unusual. When this happened, Holly called her orientation and mobility instructor, Peter. She told him she'd need to get a new cane from CNIB, where he worked. It wasn't urgent, and she had a backup cane to use in the meantime. Peter didn't know it, but that would be his last conversation with Holly. I'm Maggie Rarr and this is What Happened to Holly Bartlett.
2: Holly Bartlett was
3: found unconscious under the McKay Bridge after a night out with her friends.
4: The initial police investigation was wrapped up really quickly. Drunk, blind girl, case
5: closed.
6: The 31-year-old's death in March 2010
7: was ruled an accident.
5: There's a lot of hours in there that we don't know where she was. There's parts of me that sort of died with my sister.
6: I really would like to know what happened to Holly.
1: Somebody knows. Episode two, The Cane. On a cold, windy March morning in 2010, Holly Bartlett was found barely alive below the McKay Bridge in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Within 72 hours, police ruled her death a fatal accident. And despite outcry from Holly's friends and family that the story wasn't adding up, Police stuck to their theory. Officers believe she had wandered 350 meters from her front door, drunk and disoriented, crawled under a fence and up one of two massive bridge abutments where she would fall 10 meters to the ground below. Holly's case was closed and her death was never considered a crime. Her family never found out how she sustained the injury, blunt force trauma to the head that along with hypothermia, would ultimately claim her life. Eight years later, Peter Parsons is determined to find answers. Peter is calling Kim, Holly's older sister. Hi, Kim.
4: Hi. I met your sister Amanda a number of times. We had never met uh, The
1: line is crackly because Peter is calling on Skype from Nova Scotia. Kim has been living in North Carolina.
5: 18 years.
4: Oh, wow. I remember Holly always yeah. used to talk about visiting you in the past and that sort of thing.
5: I appreciate what you guys are doing. I think it also speaks to Holly and the person that she was and the the effect she had on everybody. That even after eight years, she's still, yeah. people still want to talk about her. And I think that she deserves better. I still feel like there's a lot of unanswered questions. Knowing Holly, the way that she thought things through and the way that how smart she was and how um, down to earth and realistic she was, it, the whole scene of where they found her and how they found her, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. Right. I still feel like there's there's more to be said and more to be found out about this. I feel like the person that knows what happened to her that night is still out there. Initially, they couldn't find
1: her cane. This is one point that has always bothered Peter. Not only because he taught Holly new routes with her cane at the university and in the office where she worked, but because he himself is partially sighted and he understands what it's like to build a map of the city using sound. And Peter knew, maybe better than anyone, how competent Holly was getting around with her cane.
4: I always saw Holly with her cane, but I'm wondering, did she ever travel without it?
5: Why in God's green earth would she give up the one thing that she could depend on to help her get to where she needed to be, which was her cane? I find that really hard to believe.
4: Right.
1: Kim and Peter understand the significance of Holly's cane and what it meant to her mobility, but that's because they knew her. When the police found Holly, The cane was nowhere to be seen reading through police notes now you can tell they were unsure about what being blind meant and in particular what it meant for holly bartlett there are a few details that leap out at 4 p.m on saturday while holly was still in the icu clinging to life police were following up on leads but some are hard to understand case in point Here's a page from the police reports from March 27, 2010.
8: Task number nine, locate victim's full-time caregiver.
1: Eventually, the officers would discover that Holly didn't have a full-time caregiver when they interviewed a neighbor who told them, aside from a woman who occasionally takes Holly grocery shopping, she lived completely independently. But how could police have gotten that so wrong hours after meeting Holly's family? Where did the idea that Holly needed a full time caregiver even come from? We know that when Holly was found, responding officers discovered a CNIB card in her backpack. It's noted in the files that Holly was blind. This was one of the first red flags that jumped out at me when I joined this investigation. I'd been working as a journalist in Halifax in March of 2010. I remember hearing about Holly on the radio, and I remember thinking that something wasn't right. In late July of 2018, I got a call asking if I'd be willing to join this project. Peter Parsons reached out to me to ask if I might help him reinvestigate the case. Peter.
4: Hi, Maggie. Hey. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thanks for, thanks for coming.
1: Yeah, of course.
4: Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have our preconceived notions and, and yeah. wanting to check ourselves as yeah. well and wanting a fresh set of eyes just to make sure we're covering everything. And I okay. really thought it'd be great to have
1: an investigative journalist such as yourself. I had my doubts about joining the project, and I told Peter as much right away. It would be not only unethical, but unrealistic for me to make any kind of commitments to you about advancing this or solving it. But he was very clear. He just wanted information. And I thought maybe I could help him with that. So I joined the team. What are the main things that you would like to see addressed in this reinvestigation, if you will?
4: Well, I was actually out of town when it happened. I missed her funeral and everything, unfortunately, but when I, yeah, we wanna make sure that we look into everything from from scratch again is what we wanna
1: do. By the time I got to work, researcher Greg Jackson was already neck deep in the case. When I showed up that first day in July and walked into the office space Greg and I would go on to share, the room was full of all these images posted up on the wall. Post-it notes with names and dates and theories. Pictures of the streets surrounding the entrances to the abutment, and there was a map. Greg had created an aerial view of the path police believe Holly had taken. When you look at the route, the size of the abutment, and how close it all is to that rushing bridge traffic, it's hard not to just stop and stare at it. But this is exactly what appealed to Greg.
9: I like puzzles. And that's one of the major things about this, is like, this is a big puzzle. And you're starting with, you're missing, you know, three quarters of the, of the pieces, but you can still figure out what the picture is.
1: Greg had already spent a couple of weeks trying to examine every aspect of the case when he learned that Brian Parsons, Peter's father, had not only conducted his own thorough investigation, but that he could actually have Brian's notes.
9: It was a big break. got the ball rolling even more. But what it also did is just sort of deepen the mystery, for lack of a better term, right? I, I think I, if I had a dollar for every time someone in the room said, that doesn't make any sense, I, we wouldn't need to sit here anymore because I'd be very wealthy. Reading Brian's notes uh, was pretty great. Like I remember, because I, that was Canada Day and I had been away from the internet for three days. And so when I got home, that was waiting for me, and I basically just locked the door and- and Devoured it. Yeah, instantly.
1: This is something I can relate to. Once I'd read through the police files, which we had almost all of, given the brevity of the investigation, and the medical examiner's pristine notes, I dove into Brian's case files. Pages and pages and pages of notes, as clinical and observant as a scientific document. He had spoken with Holly's friends, he met Holly's roommate, Andrew Seely. He had retraced her steps that Friday night. He studied the cab driver and eventually would convince him to meet with him in person. We'll hear more about that in the coming episodes. Reading these documents, poring over them day and night, the summer was disappearing around me. It was like reading a novel with a conclusion I already knew, but didn't understand. I kept looping back, always arriving at the same point, Every question led to more questions. So I did what any good journalist does. I reached out to a colleague who's already covered the story. Hey. Hey, Meg. How's it going? Good. How good are you? you? Take a hug. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. In December of 2013, Tim Biscay wrote an in depth feature about Holly's life, death, and the police investigation. The piece, Holly Bartlett's Unlikely Journey, was published in a local Halifax paper called The Coast. It was the only media coverage to go beyond the fact of Holly's death and the strange location in which she was found. So I was working as a journalist when this all happened, but I didn't cover the story. Right. And the funny thing that I keep thinking about now is that I kind of feel the same way now as I did the very first time I heard it. Yeah. Like, how the hell did she get down there?
10: I'm up that end of town yeah. Every week and every time I'm up there, i just walked around that area, like looked at things going, what the hell happened here?
1: But the thing that I'm really kind of stuck on is this idea of the space between their reaffirming that, yes, this was an accidental death and not being able to prove that there was a criminal act.
10: I'm told by police investigators that if you cannot explain someone's death, Um, you should go into the investigation thinking it's a homicide. You only get to accident when you can demonstrate that. The story from the police perspective was created when before Holly had even died.
1: They had no sense of her independence and her ability to function in the world.
10: When when I was looking at the police investigations, their notes, the thing that jumped out with me was two things. One, Holly was blind. Mm to Holly was drunk and they just immediately went to, she was blind drunk, end of story. You know, it's just like,
1: oh, well she must've walked down this way and oh, here's a hole in the fence. This idea that Holly was dropped off at her front door, turned around, walked down the steep driveway, took a right, walked 350 meters down the street, got behind the apartment building at Kencrest, crawled through a hole in the fence, climbed up an enormous concrete abutment and fell to her death is, incomprehensible. She appeared to have really an incredible yeah. ability to to navigate on top of being very clever, I think really yeah. competent. The circumstances were extraordinary. The location where they found her, Yeah. you know, all of it, her injuries, this is not like, oh, this kind of thing happens every second day or whatever.
10: The dominant thing when you're out there, I'm sure you notice this, is the sound of the highway. Yeah. That may as well be a spotlight. Here's where the highway is. I don't care how drunk she was or how blind she was. No Drunk people get home all the time. No one can miss that. No yeah. No one can miss that. It's just absurd.
1: The taxi driver who dropped Holly off on the night of. Yeah. He appears in your story, but what happened there?
10: Yeah, so I. it took me a while to find out who he was. Uh, I called him. But he just refused to talk. Did
1: you get him or did you leave a voicemail? No, I talked to him for about
10: 20 seconds. He said, No. He basically said, No. He said, I don't want to talk about it. There's been, I'd say, three or four times I've come back to the case and kind of gone through it. And I've always gone, I just don't know what to do with it.
1: When Holly was in intensive care in hospital, hours after she'd been discovered on that frigid March morning, Marion, her mother, kept asking police. Did you find her cane? And he said, no, we didn't find her
6: cane. And I said, well, she didn't go anywhere without her cane. And I said, look, that girl could have went anywhere if she had her cane, so you find her cane and that'll tell you everything.
1: According to police records, they searched the area where Holly was found that Saturday morning. But when their first searches were conducted, the officers didn't even know Holly used a cane in her everyday life. In shock and in panic, Marion informed them that Holly would never have gone anywhere without it. They went back to search the area again, this time with a canine unit.
8: Saturday, March 27th, 2010, 11.13 AM. Attended scene at request of Constable Luck for canine search of area areas within and outside of the taped scene were checked. Also checked on east side of fence, at east boundary of this location, with negative results. Surfaces were generally dry, windy, and minus six.
1: The dog searched again later that evening after the scene was formally closed by investigating officers.
8: At 1705, at request of Constable Robinson, there is a two feet by three feet hole in the fence but it requires some effort to get through it. Specifically for the victim's cane, both sides of Northridge to Novoley Drive with negative results. Areas above and below it, negative results.
1: Once again, the search turned up nothing. Holly's family was distraught. This is when an old friend of Wayne Bartlett, Holly's dad, enters the picture. Here's uh, Rendell Pittman. We were talking, i very close friends with uh, Wayne Bartlett. Right. Um, Rest his soul. Oh, his dad, yeah, yeah. Um, Peter Parsons is meeting Rendell at the site where Holly was found. So that's why we did that. And I know Wayne since 1993, so. Great. Right. Very good friends with him. So you came, was it you and your wife, did yeah, you say? Yeah, my wife and uh, youngest daughter. Oh, okay. Yes. They're walking along the site so Rendell can show Peter exactly yeah. where he was looking that day. So they said, uh, they expressed concern that they couldn't find her cane. Oh, okay.
3: So I said, well, there's got to be somewhere, so we decided to come over and we said, go we'll have a look. Right. we
4: got to find this cane. Yeah. It's very
3: important. Right. Uh, very important to uh, yes. Marion,
1: it was. Right. Holly died on Sunday, March 28th, 2010. That same day, only hours later, Rendell was searching through the brush along the steep hill leading below the bridge and all around that area where police had already removed their yellow tape. At the same time, in the shock of grief, Marion and Amanda were just leaving the hospital to go to Holly's apartment building. They needed to pick up some papers. And in a way, it seemed like a natural place to go, to be in Holly's home. They had just driven away from her condo when Marion spotted Rendell and his family.
6: When we were going down uh, Novalee Drive, there were friends of ours on the, in the area there by Kinchrist at the apartment. And I said to Amanda, what the hell are they doing there? I I was kind of offended that they would be there. Remember, this is only hours after Marion watched her daughter die. You know, that I just felt that there was no, that was no place for them. So we p- went, Mandy pulled the car over and, and we got out. And uh, the lady said, um, We just found Holly's cane. I said, You found Holly's
1: cane? This, after two unsuccessful searches by police of the area and two with police dogs, the force's German Shepherd turned up nothing.
6: Yeah, it's behind that rose bush leaned up against a fence. And we've been waiting here for quite a while for the police to come to get it because we called. And see under that little bush there,
1: there's a $5 bill. Rendell and his family waited two hours for police to arrive. This appears in police documents too. Photographs were taken and the evidence was seized.
6: I don't know right to, right to this very moment if they ever did... Uh, fingerprints on the cane. Mm. Um, I I don't know what they did with it. They had it for months mm-hmm. and then they returned it to me with her belongings. But have you seen her cane,
1: Peter?
4: No, not, uh, I'd like to I, I look at it again.
1: Holly's cane was a typical white collapsible model with a gummy round base attached to the bottom and red paint covering the lower fifth of it. Hi, Peter. Hi, Johanna, how you doing? Great. Peter is visiting Johanna Stork at CNIB, where she holds the job he once did as an orientation and mobility specialist, helping out clients like Holly. Good,
4: how's my old job doing?
1: Really busy. Marion has given Peter Holly's cane to see if it might hold answers that were overlooked eight years ago. I'm just looking
4: at it actually for the first time since a number, like a few years ago. Mm. And um, so we'll just extend it right away. I'm seeing that it's bent at the bottom which I kind of forgot about that actually, that it had the bend at the bottom.
7: So this is an aluminum cane, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of just our regular uh, go-to cane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks pretty worn. Like she used it quite a bit for at least, like at least a year. I think so. Yeah.
4: Well, yep. yeah, you could tell by even...
7: Yeah, how, how much th- the paint is worn yeah, off the there. Yeah, the red paint
4: here near the bottom. Yeah. That's really
7: worn, so that got a lot of use. And the tip is almost worn down completely.
1: One of the questions we're hoping to answer is this. Was there any indication of damage on the cane that would go beyond regular day-to-day use? Was there anything left from that night? But after a year of steady use, the cane was already in rough shape. This is something Johanna sees all the time.
7: I honestly see a lot of people getting a little bit of a bend in their cane mm-hmm. like that. Uh, it could be from different things. Like you said, if, if somebody just whacks it really hard on something yeah. for some reason, uh, or if it gets really stuck. Really
4: stuck in something. Stuck in as somebody and they yank it out. Yeah. And it,
7: it bends, although it is pretty hard to bend it. Like, it takes it takes quite a bit of force to bend it.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe it's possible that uh, it could have got bent that night, possibly, as well, right? Like It's
7: possible. I've seen canes get a little bent like that if people become frustrated and hit their cane, oh, like, right. on either on the sidewalk or on, a wall right. or something Maybe a pole like that or
4: something, possibly. Yeah,
7: or like you said, if it if it gets hit by a car, but it does take some force to bend a cane like that. It doesn't just get bent from normal use, in my experience.
1: There was no way to know for sure exactly how Holly's cane became so damaged. And the bend at the base of it could have been from that little dust up on the street that happened just a couple weeks before she died. Or it could have happened the night of. There's just no way of knowing. As a last-ditch effort, we reach out to Neil Fraser, a retired RCMP officer, a cop with 22 years under his belt. Hi.
4: Hi, Neil. Neil. I'm Peter. Nice to meet you, Nice to meet
1: you. Neil Fraser specializes in forensic identification. We knew it was a long shot, but we wanted to know if it would be possible to get any trace of evidence, whether it be a fiber or DNA that could help us find out who had handled the cane or where it was.
0: The word forensic means relating to the courts. So when we do a forensic examination of the scene, we're using science and uh, our experience to collect evidence that we can uh, present factually to a court of law. Okay. And when we do that, our main goal is to be totally objective and unbiased. What is the truth? What are the facts here? Right. Whether it benefits the Crown uh, in their prosecution or whether it benefits the defense, you want to give the best evidence to the court and to be able to say these are the facts.
1: But Holly's case never reached a courtroom. No one was ever charged. As far as the police were concerned, a crime had never even taken place. We needed to know if it was too late to get any reliable information.
0: One of the problems that happens if, when articles are left is, first of all, if you're looking for DNA or you're looking for fingerprints, humidity, heat, bacteria, things like that will destroy that, that evidence okay. if it's not packaged properly.
1: This was a problem. Police had returned the cane to Marion after the investigation was closed. It
0: has to be accounted for. So if there's a period of time of five, six, eight years, Mm. if you cannot show that that has been secured, it's basically meaningless.
1: Meaningless. We had the cane, but any hope of gathering evidence from it was dashed. And so once again, we were back to square one back to sifting through the case files. This is one of the details that jumps out. Holly's gloves. She'd always put them on before she snapped out her cane in every month, except July and August. It was a habit, something you wouldn't even think about. But Holly's gloves were found inside her backpack. And the location of the cane itself, standing upright, leaning against a fence, halfway down a very steep hill in a completely inhospitable space that's inaccessible to the public behind an apartment building, has troubled Holly's family and Peter for years. Here's Kim.
5: And it was opened. I mean, it was extended and stuck standing upright. That doesn't make any sense to
1: me. Why would Holly have left her cane there? Why was it out of her backpack? And how could police have missed it when Rendell Pittman and his family came across it so easily? Another problem, the fence. It had been replaced in 2012. That hillscape behind the apartment building that was once barren and steep is even harder to get through today because of the overgrowth. Weeds, trees, roots, and shrubs have forced their way up through the rocks, making the walking path extremely challenging, even for a sighted person. Here's Rendell and Peter trying to climb down through the site with rocks sliding underfoot. Uh, It's like
3: loose rock here.
1: Yeah. We came down around
3: and uh, walked around and basically, and it was right there, right there. Okay. Standing on the fence.
1: Rendell shows Peter as close as he can exactly where he found the cane. Afterward, Peter asks him if he has any photos that he might have taken that day. Any images to help piece together the path Holly could have taken. Peter was hoping for pictures of a hole in the fence that police theorized Holly crawled through. But what Rendell found instead was this Take
2: your time. That's it. Yeah, I found it. I have found Holly Bartlett's cane inside of the fence behind an apartment building.
1: That's Rendell Pittman's then wife, Patricia, narrating on a scrambling handheld video.
2: But she was found on the other side of the fence. And as you can see, this is barbed wire. The police better be doing an investigation on this because that girl, that young lady, this is very, very suspicious to me. Holly Bartlett, as far as I'm concerned, there's foul play involved here because Harley Bartlett was a blind lady. She did not get across this barbed wire fence from here. There's absolutely no way. And get across this bridge, absolutely no way. No way, and be found way the heck over here. The police better do their investigation because the taxi driver that brought her here is not telling the truth. This is Holly Bartlett's cane. And I have found money on the scene as well. Um, this is very, very suspicious. And I truly hope that justice prevails in this situation.
3: Basically, our game was by looking at that mixed in with trees. So mm-hmm. like that time of year, there's no leaves around.
4: Right. Is this something else seen in this video? I'm getting chills
3: watching it.
1: Rendell had forgotten he even had this video.
3: So have the police seen this? No, they have not. They never asked me if we had video or pictures or anything. It, nobody's ever seen these until today. Until today, wow.
1: Yeah. This was a real break. When the tape made its way to the office where Greg and I were pacing the room and running over questions in a kind of extended brainstorm, it was a huge get.
9: That was mind-blowing because that's firsthand thing, right? Like that... that we were
1: on the ceiling.
0: Yeah.
9: Seeing firsthand video of one of the big questions, one of the huge, this doesn't make sense things.
1: Yeah, the cane is like the MacGuffin.
9: Yeah, yeah, it's it's still nuts, you know, like, and, and I had my own theories about how the cane got there and, and seeing it firsthand is, is flooring.
2: First I found the money and then I found her cane. She went right along here somehow and somehow Holly Bartlett's body was found on the other side of a barbed wire fence and her cane was left standing straight up. That is definitely foul play.
1: Rendell's video shows Holly's cane leaning against a fence outside of the locked area where Holly was found. The red base of the cane is visible, but it sits in a nest of thorns surrounding it. It isn't hard to understand Rendell's conclusion. My, uh, my thoughts when I saw it,
3: the way it was placed, it stood up like that. It looked to me like it was staged. Right. Like, this, you know, wow. She would not leave, nor any blind person would leave their cane behind. Right. That's how they see. Right.
4: And you think if you somehow dropped it, maybe it would just be laying more yeah, if, randomly exactly, or something. Exactly. Yeah.
3: If she had dropped it, it would have been on the ground. Oh, I can't find it. Right. Right, but
1: not stood up against the fence and then and then leave it there. Right. Finding the cane only hours after Holly died was intense enough, but what happened next made the situation harder for oh. Rendell and his family. And when the police did show up, they uh,
3: were more suspicious about why we were here. Oh, really? I, I felt more uh, like being investigated. Wow. So then you being just helpful. helped them out. You're yes. doing
4: and yeah. waited two hours, yes. and now you're feeling more like. Yeah, like a, like a victim. Like, wow. You know, that's interesting you say that because when I first called the police to express my concern yes. about like and how it made no sense as Holly's Orientation Mobility Specialist, yes. I felt like on the defensive right from the start. And and, uh, you know, I remember even asking about, like, did you talk to the cab driver? He's like, well, I was a criminal profiler in Ottawa and an experienced team of investigators came to this conclusion. Yes. And yep. what was another thing? Because I said I was to be talking to Holly's mom. I'll oh, be mindful of mom. Like, in other words, you know, don't say things that might make her believe something else might have happened. Yeah, or yeah. And it's like, wow, I felt defensive. Like, I exactly,
3: felt like, yeah.
4: yeah. So when you described the feeling you had, I had a similar feeling.
3: Yes, yeah. And we had to actually fill out a paper saying why we were here, what we were doing here. Okay. And, you know, like how we knew the bar, the right. bullets, and, and everything. Like, right, right. You know,
1: like well, thankfully you were vision. here and found it, <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. That's right? a key detail yeah, that they was. missed. Yes. Rendell's discovery only hours after Holly died was deeply unsettling for Marion. But her questions surrounding the cane have yet to be answered. Here she is discussing it all with Brian and Peter.
6: It begs the question, where did her cane come from? How come her cane wasn't there at 5 o'clock on Saturday, Mm -hmm. but at 5 o'clock on Sunday, it was there in plain view? You wouldn't have needed a canine unit to find it that day.
0: No, you wouldn't. No.
6: Well, I was told at the hospital the day before that they had all that area taped off with yellow tape that they were investigating it. But how is it that Halifax police, a dog, and all these experts were there, and they didn't see this, and these two people who've never done any investigative work, they had had no idea where Holly, where they found Holly. They really didn't.
0: But if somebody, dropped it there afterwards why would they have put it so visibly
6: yeah because if you wanted to get rid of it you could have gotten rid of it in a lot of places that it would have never been found
0: that's right right and that cane if it was that visible should have been spotted
1: what brian said stuck with me if the cane really was sitting there all day saturday that entire night and the next morning wouldn't somebody have seen it we had to go back and find out With a stack of printed letters, Peter and I headed to Kencrest, the apartment building that overlooks the bridge and the concrete abutment where Holly was found. It felt like a long shot, but we had to find out if anyone was still there who lived in the building back then, and if they'd seen or heard anything that night. An even more remote hope, maybe someone was seen with Holly's cane that Sunday. We'll just start at the top Mm -hmm. and then come down. We have these Letters if anybody's not home or right. where we can just slip it under the door. Okay. Did you see this? the content of this letter? Very, very briefly. The title is just What Happened to Holly Bartlett. Mm-hmm. Hello, we're a group of journalists and concerned citizens who are trying to find out new information about the death of Holly Bartlett in March of 2010. Holly was found in the morning of March 27th in front of the north abutment below the McKay Bridge. If you have any information at all, no matter how small, please would you contact us at the number below? We knocked on every single door on the top floor. It was in the middle of a heat wave, and the building was really, really hot. Behind some doors, we could hear fans buzzing, but almost no one answered. And those that did didn't live in the building in 2010. In fairness, it was in the middle of the day. That's why we left the letters. We're looking for people that lived here in 2010.
7: I do know people that lived here
1: then. You do? Yeah, so I
7: could... I don't know if they know anything, but I could get in touch with
2: her now.
1: Thank you so much. You're welcome. Really very appreciate much. it. Okay. You didn't happen to live here in 2010, did you? No. Did you happen to live here in 2010? No. We'd gone through almost the entire building and hadn't found anyone who was there or anyone who remembered anything. Finally, we were at the last door. Oops! Someone's coming. Hi. Hi. Hi, um, We're just looking for people that lived in the building in 2010. Were you here then? Yes. I don't know if anyone's asked you yet about uh, if you were awake on the night that Holly Bartlett was last seen around here.
2: I mean, I lived here, but
1: no. Mm. And nobody came around to ask you about it at the time, like police or anybody like that? Oh God, no. No, I wouldn't remember that. This was confirmation of troubling reports we learned from Brian's notes. Police had told the Bartlett's they'd canvassed the area. Brian, Peter, and some of the Justice for Holly group members had canvassed Holly's building just up the street. But every single person they talked to said police had never come around. It was startling to hear this for ourselves from the only person we found who still lived in the building and who remembered what had happened. Peter and I were standing there at the end of the hallway, sweaty and overheated, hoping that someone might read the letter and call us back, when someone walked directly into our path from the stairwell entry. Hi. Hello. Hi. Did you live here in 2010? Pardon? Did you live in this building in in 2010? Yeah, I've been here about 14 years. The man wearing shorts and a ball cap looked to be in his mid-80s, but his eyes were clear, and so was his memory. We're um, working on a documentary about uh, the death of Holly Bartlett.
11: Yeah, I, I used to talk to her because she used to come over and go to that, uh, there's a special stop for the bus stop. She used to get on there and she was a lovely person. She was so friendly.
4: Yeah. You used to talk yeah. to her?
11: Yeah, yeah, I talked to her dozens of times. I felt so bad when I heard what happened.
1: Peter was a good friend of um, mm. Holly's.
11: Is that right? Yeah. Wondered really the way it happened. It didn't seem to make sense to me. Mm-hmm. That's
1: exactly what we're doing here today. We're trying to get more information and just see if there's anybody that has any little tiny shred yeah. of information or the saw information. anything that night, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, the way
11: she would walk, I mean, you know, she never strayed from one side of the street to the other. Right. She knew directly where she was going. Mm-hmm. She'd go to that stop where the bus picked her up she never pass that or anything like that. The one right across the street? the yeah, one right across the street you yeah. see the sign over yeah. there. Yeah. So, you just said that... I hope you can find something out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, too. An ex, oh I'm
1: an ex-cop, eh? Oh, really? Yeah. Where did you serve? Any I don't I suppose you have mm-hmm. any recollection of the night of March 26th, 2010. I do. 2010. You yeah, do?
11: Yeah. What do you remember? I mean, I, I remember it was a cold night. Mm-hmm. And it had snowed the day before. And uh, when I heard the news the next day and I turned the radio on and got the news, I just couldn't believe it because she traveled so much back and forth. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah, you know. So when you'd I, see her near here, it would be at the bus stop, right? yeah and and you I mean, this is gonna sound ridiculous, but you never saw her like, you no. know taking any other weird routes over a grassy hill no, or anything
11: like that. I never she never she followed the same pattern. Every
4: day. So you didn't see her get disoriented? No,
11: she never did. She just knew exactly where she was going. Exactly, yeah. You know? Yeah. It felt so bad, you know, when I heard it. It just broke my heart.
1: Jerry remembered Holly. He remembered that Friday night, even the weather. And even though his apartment looked out over the fence where Holly's cane was found, he hadn't seen a thing. But maybe someone did see something eight years ago. Maybe if police had canvassed, they could have zeroed in on a detail, something that could illuminate those hours. But they didn't. And Holly's family has had to live with that ever since.
5: I just miss having her around. I miss her jokes. I miss her calling and asking me to pick her up and me getting irritated. <laughs> I miss her laugh. I miss her laugh. I miss hearing her stories. I miss seeing her reach goals and I miss it all. I just miss her. I miss
0: I miss the story.
6: I really would like to know what happened to Holly.
1: On the next episode, we seek help from an expert who can explain Holly's injuries. And we'll learn where Holly's wallet and iPhone were found. I think so, we have all of the medical examiner's reports as well as the medical reports. I just wonder, with your expertise, if you might be able to in- interpret more than we can.
6: I can always comment on what, you know, I can see or what I can understand from, you know, the medical examiner's
1: report that or the, or the uh, doctor's report. So, in your role, would you ever make guesses or presumptions about how a certain injury occurred?
6: Oh, as a forensic anthropologist, absolutely.
1: I'm Maggie Rahr, and this is What Happened to Holly Bartlett. This podcast is produced by Ocean Entertainment. Our executive producer is Johanna Elliott. Our supervising producer is Jennifer Camo. What Happened to Holly Bartlett is edited by Fabian Malanson. And written and hosted by me, Maggie Rar. Podcast sound design and mix by Village Sound. For accessible media, regional content specialist is Ryan Delahanty. And Andrew Morris is development and production
0: executive. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider
1: leaving us a review and a rating. And don't forget to subscribe.